Father God, your name is holy above all of any. God, we exalt you tonight. Father, we lift you up. Father, we realize that we can't, we can't do this on our own. We can't go through life on our own. Lord, we know that we need you. So, Father, we give you everything that we have. We lift up our dreams. We lift up our wishes. God, we lift up our families and our jobs and the visions that you've given each of us. God, it's all yours. Father, I pray that you would use us for your work. God, give us the love for people that are around us. Give us your eyes so we can see what you see in our community, in God, in our city. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart for people who are homeless, poor, and needy. God, more than anything else, they need you. So, Father, I pray that we would go out and that we would share your love. It's nothing else. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift that you gave us and the grace that you continually give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. We're in Mark, uh, the end of chapter 2 tonight and then into chapter 3. We'll go to chapter 2, 23, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. So while you're turning there, Thanksgiving was this last week. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving, uh, which leads me to my intro of traditions. Family traditions are often based around holidays, especially Thanksgiving and, uh, and, and Christmas, and I am no different than most people in having family traditions on what we did growing up. Two traditions I want to share with you. Uh, in, in speaking about traditions, they can have positive or negative effects on you in life. And so Christmas, we always had to clean the house. Before, on Christmas Eve, we, like all day, cleaned the house, and then Christmas Eve, we got to open presents. And so it established this idea of cleanliness before... I don't know, opening presents in the fun time. I'm not sure really the positive aspects from that, but that's what we always did. And then I got married, and my wife is a clean freak, and so we do similar things, except it's more often. Yes, I'm I'm a clean freak too, but, but still. And, and so that just kind of prepared me. So it was a positive experience. On the other hand, growing up, and, and probably until I was maybe 13 or 14, every Sunday night, our dinner was popcorn. Yeah, Sunday night was popcorn in the basement at the house. And I was scarred for at least a decade from that. Literally, I mean, I walked away hating popcorn until, like, my late 20s. I could go to the movie and, like, sit down and eat popcorn and not, like, just have flashbacks and memories of being eight dinner popcorn. And so, I mean, it really did scar me for life on popcorn. And so it was a tradition that really carried a negative effect. So tonight we're going to, we're going to go into some, some, uh, you could term it a tradition, but it's much heavier than that on what's going to be addressed in our passage tonight. So in Mark, as we walked through Mark, uh, I went back and listened just to the beginning of a sermon and realized that as I start these, I never say that the Gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus, or at least the one I listen to. It seems like I'm just like running out the gate, and here we go. So if you've missed any time, you're not caught up. And I'm trying to catch you up, but I'm doing it so fast that nobody's catching up anyway. So just like shut up, move on with what you're doing, and let's get out of here. So just to, to do a slower recap, but still a nutshell, Mark is... A gospel. 
being the story of Jesus. So Mark writes, a man named Mark writes, and we've talked about there are a couple options. It could be uh, John Mark, who was a follower of Peter and Paul. It could be Mark, uh, someone who uh, converted in kind of the Roman area or area of Rome. Anyways, book is more than likely written to the Romans, and it is the story of Jesus. In the gospel of this is how God is now relating with man, and this is how God is bringing about, about the redemption of man through Jesus. And so that's the story. But the undercurrent of Mark, as we've talked before, as a Roman citizen would hear the story of Jesus, the gospel, the message of Jesus, that God became man and then died for us, being crucified. Once you get to that point, any typical Roman would then associate Jesus now as someone who's crucified as a criminal. And so as we've talked and addressed in Mark, Mark defends the divinity of Jesus to establish this idea that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God giving him divinity, giving the deity of Jesus, so it, then, it, then it overshadows and covers this whole criminal idea because Jesus wasn't a criminal. So it's, anyways, that's it. those are the two purposes of Mark's writing. So as we continue on in following Jesus through Mark, we pick up the end of chapter 2, verse 23. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. Now, a Sabbath, what is a Sabbath? A Sabbath was the seventh day. If we go back and we look at our Old Testament if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, you don't have to go there. You can if you want. It's at the very beginning. It's where it all starts. That's why it's called Genesis, and chapter 1 would be the first one. But in reading the creation, actually this is going to be chapter 2, verse 2, I'm sorry. But in the first account of creation, at the end of that, after God has spent six days creating, in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all work of of the creating that he had done. So if we go all the way to the beginning, we see there's a God. He makes everything. In the creation account, it takes him six days. He's speaking things into existence. And then you have the seventh day. He goes, all right, I'm finished, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to rest, and I'm going to make the seventh day holy. So you take that story, and then you move it over. We go all the way to Exodus 20. We'll make a short reference that we made last week. But just building this idea, what is the Sabbath? We know that it is the seventh day, the day that God rested. But it says in Genesis, God makes that holy. And then you have Moses, who's being given the law by God. And in the Ten Commandments, he gives him the fourth one, which in verse 8 of Exodus 20 is, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, <coughs> Excuse me, nor a maidservant, um, manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So as God is giving Moses the law, the fourth thing he tells them that the people will do is every seventh day you will rest from what you do. And he takes it back and goes, I created in seven, or in six days, and then I rested on the seventh day. So you two will rest. If you listen to N.T. Wright, he takes the creation account as a, uh, a symbolic way of describing how we are to worship and tabernacle with God and have relationship. And it describes in those seventh days what your seven days are supposed to look like in a week of worship, and the last one being the day of rest. And so you have the law of Moses that's given to him. If we go all the way to Exodus uh, 34, um, verse 21, and what I'm doing is I'm giving you the biblical, uh, at least the hard points that God gives. Here's what you're going to do on the Sabbath. Verse 21 of, 
of chapter 34 of Exodus. It says, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. And so, basically what's given to us at this point on the Sabbath day is there's a seventh day of the week, and you're not supposed to do anything, work-wise. It's the, it's the fourth thing that God gives Moses, and then uh, as he continues just to address the law and everything, uh, he addresses it again in Leviticus 24. But you've, you've got, not vague, but just kind of umbrella concept of you will rest on the Sabbath. You won't labor and you won't harvest. God doesn't really go in and articulate the specific details. This is how it's going to look like from start to finish. So what do they do? But we know that they had an oral tradition or an oral law that was believed to be given to Moses. You got Moses back in chapter 34. Moses on Mount Sinai. He's given the Ten Commandments. He comes down. He smashes them. He goes back to get them. God says, okay, you're going to chisel these things on a tablet. And then Moses spends 40 days not eating, not drinking. He's in a fast. We talked about that last week. He's fasting and he's receiving revelation from God. This is how your people group will worship me. And he gives him the law. Your first five books of your Old Testament, if you want to go uh, conservative, just traditional thought process on how we got that thing. And so Moses spends 40 days receiving this, well, as well as the written law. Jewish people are going to say there's an oral tradition that goes with that. That doesn't show up in a writing until like the third century, uh, and then also the sixth century. You've got the Talmud that is a combination of oral tradition and then just more commentary on the rest of the law. And so we know that they had, during Jesus' time, they have an oral tradition that goes to interpret the law that God's given them. And so you have the fourth commandment. You've got the Sabbath day, make it holy. Well, what do we do with that? And so in the oral tradition, they build their theology. This is how we are supposed to specifically rest on the Sabbath. And they go through that and they they make um, multiple different rules and regulations. They've got uh, like five things they're supposed to proactively do on the Sabbath. They would... I'm actually going to read them. I made it on my notes today. I usually don't use my notes, and I'm real proud of that, but today I have to, and I'm sorry. Um, five things they would proactively do on the Sabbath. They would prepare for the Sabbath by bathing, dressing in customary clothing for the Sabbath. They would engage in proper conversation, meaning they wouldn't have negative conversation. They also weren't encouraged to have like business conversations or money conversation, and that was a way that they were resting. Uh, they would eat three proper meals throughout that time period, which was a, which was a Friday evening to a Saturday evening on how the Sabbath lasted. They would recite specific prayers before their first two meals. Uh, Sabbath enjoyment included singing, eating, uh, family time, and even sex. And then the fifth thing they would do, they would recite uh, basically the closing ceremony of the Sabbath day. And so those were five proactive things they did. Here is how we're going to step out, and this is how we're going to Sabbath. This is how we're going to rest. This is how we're going to worship God in our day of rest. Here are five practical things we're going to do, or five specific things we will proactively do. And then there were 39 categories of things you did not do that basically included everything that's not working. And so from building to putting out a fire to weaving to sewing to separating to harvesting to all these different things, you have 39 categories, and then in those categories there are subcategories. And so in this oral tradition, you take number four, take the Sabbath day and rest because it's holy. And do so because God establishes through creation, you've got your seven days or your six days of creation, the seventh day God rests. So he establishes this is how you relate with God, this is how you worship God, and the seventh day you'll rest. And then he specifically tells them, do this. But he doesn't articulate how. So they have this oral tradition that then says, here you go, and it on a plate. And this is how the thing works. And so you have Jesus 
Mark chapter 2, on the Sabbath day, the day that they are to be resting, Jesus is going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick (coughs) some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So you had Jesus and his disciples. They're walking through a grain field. (coughs) They're hungry. So they pick some grain, and they begin to separate the heads of grain so that they can make it from an unedible source to an edible source of food and then eat it. The problem is, the Pharisees see this, and, and knowing their ultras, knowing how, this is how specifically we are to rest on the Sabbath. You're doing something that is now unlawful. They look at it and say, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Do you have a man who shows up, Jesus shows up, and begins to teach the coming kingdom of God? Begins to teach all of these people, this is what God is doing. He's healing people, and he's teaching repentance and the coming kingdom of God. It's, I mean, he's a, he's a godly man, and thousands of people are following and coming to Jesus. And as this, this revelation of who Jesus is and what God is doing is being conveyed, you have religious leaders, people who are well-educated, who have spent their lives devoting themselves to the law, to the understanding, to the leading of people, to the practicing, to raising their families, all of those things, then look at and say, this is heretical. You're doing what is unlawful, and you're supposed to be a godly person. What are you doing? Not only are you are you not supposed to be doing this, but those who are following you are not are not acting the way that you are, and are following you. What are you teaching these people? So Jesus goes on and says, "Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread." which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If we go back and look at um, 1 Samuel uh, 21, if you want to flip there, you can. We'll be there just for a minute. Which is the story of David. Jesus illustrates with an actual story uh, of a man that they would obviously well recognize, David being the king of Israel, the most productive king, as far as a godly king, most productive would have been probably Solomon just financially and uh, as far as the kingdom and spreading and all those things. But David would have been <coughs> considered probably the best spiritual leader of that uh, of the nation. First uh, Samuel 21, verse 10. The day that uh, David fled from Solomon. Excuse me, I'm in the wrong place. Chase didn't mark his Bible on this thing. It is 21, and I can't find the verse because literally I didn't mark it with my Bible. There was a woman. Yes, okay, back up. Yeah, go back up. I am so sorry. Yeah, it is the beginning. That's why I didn't mark it. There it is. I tried to skip down. Oops. I really am smart. You didn't know that. So, verse, tw- uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. David went to Nob to Elimelech the priest. Elimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Okay, David has now fled. He's fled from Saul, and he's taken some men with him. And he's fled uh, <coughs> quickly. This is after this, um, Saul's trying to kill him. Uh, him and Jonathan have the exchange, and he's out. Uh, so he doesn't take <coughs> weapons with him. He doesn't take food. I mean, it's a fasting. It's not like he's got time to pack and prepare, plan, and map it out. He just runs. And so he goes to, uh, he goes to Nob, enters in. The high priest is like, what are, you, what are you doing alone? This doesn't make sense. Verse 2, David answers him, him, Ahimelech. 
I think that's right. The priest, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at this certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So David running has no food. He needs food for himself and his men. Give me five loaves of bread or anything. Whatever you got, I'll take it. I'll eat it. Verse 4. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, consecrated bread excuse me, since there was no bread uh, there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread <coughs> on the day that it was taken. Now, one of Saul's servants was there, oh, excuse me, we'll just stop right there. So David runs in, he runs into Nob to the high priest and says, I need food. And he says, I don't have anything other than the bread that's to be placed on the table in the presence of the Lord. And so if we go back to Leviticus, the, the I think I mentioned that earlier, passage in Leviticus, as God is describing different things and things that will happen on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, there's consecrated bread, there's pure bread that's put on the table in the presence of the Lord specifically for the high priest to eat. And when that whole, that whole thing is established, it's there for Aaron and his relatives, and that's what they will eat. And that's passed down through the lines of the priest. And so David runs in, and he eats bread that lawfully he is not supposed to eat. But it's not a big deal. As the storyline goes, you don't have uh, you, you don't have Samuel come in and address him. You don't have later Nathan come in and address him, who were prophets who would come in. Nathan, with the issue with Bathsheba, David does his thing, goes through that whole ordeal, and then Nathan comes in and convicts him of done this and this is wrong. This storyline, David's not convicted. He's not confronted. Nothing happens. And so we walk away knowing, okay, there are certain occasions when you can go in and do something you're not supposed to do. David goes in. He needs bread. He needs bread for himself. He needs bread for those who are with him. He has nothing. He has no uh, he, he doesn't have any weapons, but he goes in and says, hey, I need food. And the conversation that goes on between him and the priest might not even be an honest conversation. David had just taken off. Were he and his men clean and kept from women? Up for debate. The the point is not, you know, does David run in and he's perfectly honest? Is, is that the point of the whole thing? No. The whole point is David goes in and is able to take something he's not supposed to take. Lawfully, ceremonially, he is not supposed to eat. It gets wrong. Don't do that. God said no. Remember the last time somebody did something God said no to? That was Saul, and he lost the kingdom, or he's in process of losing his kingdom. But David comes in and does that. It's, I mean, it's almost this concept of there are times when doing the right thing isn't doing the right thing. And so Jesus refers back to and says, have you never heard the story when David went in and he fed his men? And then he uses that and says, I mean, he fed his men with bread that he was not supposed to eat, that was consecrated, that God specifically said no. And was clean for a purpose. But yet David did it without fault. And Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus addresses the issue and gives them perspective. Is the Sabbath important? Absolutely. It's the fourth commandment he gave the people of Israel. The fourth thing you will do. You will you will remember the Sabbath and you will keep it holy. It will be a day of worship and resting. Absolutely. But their perspective was wrong. Now, maybe rightfully so, or at least to some degree, if we go back, we look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, and through the rest of the prophets, 
there's an issue with the way that they're practicing their Sabbath. They're either not doing it, they're doing it incorrectly, they're doing things wrong. Especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Why Isaiah comes and says, hey, you're all stupid, God's going to punish you. Jeremiah shows up, you're all stupid, God's going to punish you, and now he is punishing you. And then he did punish you. And so that's the message that's being brought. And both of those, uh, both of those prophets bring up the issue of the Sabbath. And so we know that they've got issues before the exile. This is obviously after the exile. And, and so they may be carrying this weight of, we've got to do this thing right. <clears throat> but yet Jesus is giving them perspective in trying to pull them out of this idea of legalism. It's not so much about, here it is, this is what you have to do. Yeah, here are some parameters. That's fantastic. This is how this thing should look. This is how it should work. Should we rest? Absolutely. However, if an occasion arises where something needs to be done for the benefit of somebody, that's okay. Because the point of the Sabbath is to rest. It's not a burden. If the disciples are not able to walk through a grain field and pick off some food to eat, they have no food. They need food, so they pick it, they eat it. If they have to carry around this idea of the Sabbath and they can't pick it to eat, they don't get to eat. That's not resting. That's a burden. That's starving. And so he's trying to give them correct perspective in how this whole thing is supposed to work. Going on in, uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, the story continues, or the issue of the Sabbath continues. This is another time. He went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So you've got a man who's disabled once again. And <clears throat> some of them were looking uh, for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. So you already have people, we obviously see the Pharisees um, are in opposition to Jesus. You've got a few different people groups who don't like Jesus because of this rise of popularity, what he's teaching that they don't agree with. He's obviously kind of, he's challenging what they believe, what they think, how they practice, what they teach, all of those things. And so he's got at least three people groups who are mad at him. And the Pharisees, as they watch him come in, they're already upset. And now we're looking for things to be mad at. We're no longer looking for God to reveal what he's doing with man. We're just looking to be angry with what you're doing. We don't like you. Let's find something else not to like. Which is very interesting because you have, as the story's going to go out, you've got a man who's disabled. Jesus walks in and heals him, and these people miss it. Again, Mark is writing to defend the divinity of Jesus. He's writing to defend that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who are watching miss the whole the whole point of healing the man, and they're mad because it happened on the Sabbath day. I'm giving away the story. So he goes into a Sabbath. It says they're waiting to accuse Jesus. So he watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. <coughs> Let me single you out. Verse 4, when Jesus asked them, <coughs> which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? That's a pretty big question, right? Again, Jesus perceiving, I already know what you're thinking, I know what you're watching for. And let me ask you, once again, he poses another question. Just like when he healed the man who was on the bed that they lower and he said, son, your sins are let go. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are set free. And perceiving that they go, okay, only God can forgive sins. He then addresses with the question, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say get up and walk? And he says, get up and walk. And man gets up and walks out. So again, poses a question, is it lawful to do good or to do evil? Is it good to give life or is it good to kill someone on the Sabbath day? Which is better? He goes on and says, but they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And this is very interesting. Jesus 
says, stand up in front of everyone so everyone can see your jacked up pants. And then he has a conversation with the Pharisees who are watching for something to be mad at to accuse him. To arrest or to kill or what. And we're going to see in a minute they're pretty upset. But he has him stand up. He perceives that. He has this conversation and says, is it better to do something good for this man? Or is it better to leave him in the condition he is regardless of what day it is? And there is silence. And Jesus is angry. He's not just a little upset. He's not a little annoyed. I mean, he's mad. Why is he mad? He's mad at the hearts of those who are watching. Why? Because they don't have compassion on the man who's sick. And that has been evident throughout. So far, the first two and leading into the third chapter, you have those who in opposition to Jesus are not sympathetic to those in need. They are not sympathetic to those who are crippled. They're not sympathetic to those, well, I guess to agree, to a degree some of those are, but everything that happens, their response is negative. The response is negative about fasting. The response is negative about Jesus healing. The response is negative about Jesus calling and asking a tax collector to follow him. The response is negative for him to sit down and eat with those who are sinners and tax collectors. It's all negative on those who have need. And that makes Jesus angry. Which takes us back to this point has come up the last three sermons, this idea of taking care of those who are in need when we have the opportunity to and we have the means to. If we don't have compassion on those people, where do we stand? Some of us are more than happy to come on Sundays and look for things that make us angry. If you've been at a church for more than two years or more than five years or more than ten years or if you've ever worked at a church, you know there are certain people who come to church to be mad. It's awesome. They are the best. That's what they're looking for. And they're consumed with this whole thing is about me. The message is about me. The music is about me. The way you relate to me is about me. The small groups are about me. The children's program is about me. The marriage ministry is about me. All the ministries in the church are about me. How you use the money is about me. The voting is about me. The whole thing is about me. Where do I fit? How do I fit? Do I like it? Is this place good for me? And we lose sight of, what it, I mean, what's the reason to be here? To rest, to worship, to fellowship with each other. Sunday is supposed to be our Sabbath. And often, I would argue, that puts us in a very similar camp to the Pharisees because they come in looking for what's wrong. And they miss a divine healing. They're mad at a guy. They're looking for a reason to accuse someone. He heals a man's hand. They miss it. God is at work. God is revealing to you, physically revealing to you, this is what God is doing. And they're blind to that. Jesus can walk away and do this as a victory dance. Is it like, I'm sorry, most of you didn't get that. <laughs> That's a really cool dance, I like doing it. But they're missing the whole point because they're so consumed on what's negative and what's wrong. Rather than what's being done and what's right and how God is moving. And it makes Jesus angry. And I think it's fair to say when we miss the boat like that, when we miss opportunities to have compassion on people, to reach people, to do things physically for people who are in need, 
That makes Jesus angry, whether it's on the Sabbath or not. I think that makes God angry with us. Because we're missing the point. Our, our whole point of being a community of believers, of being a church, of being a family, is not that we come together and enjoy a message and learn more about the Bible. Those are good things. It's good to enjoy a message. It's great to learn more about the Bible. That's why we study. That's why we teach. That's why, at least to a degree, we come together and put an emphasis on a message. Those are important. But that's not the only thing we're supposed to be doing. The bigger pieces are having compassion on people, doing what we're supposed to be doing actively. And when we don't, it makes God angry. And so Jesus says, stretch out your hand. The man stretches out his hand and is completely restored. Verse 6, and the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so here you have another people group, likely a political group, who are aligned with uh, Herod's family, Herod the king of the Jews at that time. Um, either that or it's his soldiers or maybe a combination of the two. But you have the Pharisees now and the Herodians who are both now in conspiracy to what? To How are we going to kill this man? Again, you were just in a room where a man had a crippled hand and he stretched it out and it's completely restored and you want to kill the guy. What sense does that make? None. You've got somebody who can fix problems. Please bring him in here and let's keep him around. We can use that. But yet they're angry, completely missing the boat, completely being focused on this is how this has to happen. Again, this whole thing is built from the way that Jesus is responding to the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, he walks through a grain field. His disciples pick things. They see it and go, what are you doing, you heretic? He walks into a worship facility on the Sabbath, and there's a man who's crippled. And he says, let me heal you. And they say, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. That's work. You're a heretic. We're going to kill you. That's what they did with heretics. And so again, this whole concept of what role does a tradition play in our worship? What role does a tradition play in our understanding of God's word? Our understanding of the relationship between God and man? Our understanding of how we relate to God in specifics? Here Jesus is clearly saying, yes, the Sabbath is important. Absolutely. It's given to us in the law. It's given to us all the way back to Genesis and the story of creation, the way that we understand the beginning of the origin of the world and of man and the working of the whole system. It's in there. <clears throat> and so the Sabbath is important. It's important for us physically to rest from work. If you worked 24-7, you would die. You have to rest. Your body has to have rest. You mentally have to have rest. You physically have to have rest. You holistically have to have rest. And so God establishes that for man to give him rest so he can function. It's a core component of bodybuilding. If you work out, you have to eat right. You have to exercise. You have to rest. If you don't do one of the three, it doesn't work. You have to rest. That's how your body builds and grows. Most of you don't care about that. That's okay. Some of you do. Marty, I know you're on board with me. Maybe not. Whatever. If you're sitting on the front row, I'd spit on you just a projectile. But again, the, I mean, this whole concept of what does, what is the role of tradition? And Jesus is debunking that this tradition, this idea, this understanding is not a burden. It's for our benefit. How does that translate for us? Obviously, we don't practice the Sabbath the way that they did here, but there are other traditions in place. That, that can become issues. 
Communion is one of those. I come from a basically a Southern Baptist background. It's where I, it's an independent Baptist church, but take, well, just in theory and practice, it was basically Southern Baptist and now is. Um, in the concept of communion, which was called the Lord's Supper at the church that I grew up in, we had it four times a year. And it was always after an evening service. And they literally, if you were not a Christian, a professing Christian, they would kick you out. And so I remember as a kid being kicked out of the Lord's Supper. And it was like the secret of meeting. They shut the doors and they would have what was called the Lord's Supper. And so I'm an eight-year-old outside the hallway waiting for mom and dad. What is going on in there? I mean, it was almost cultish. And I'm like, I, I don't understand this. And it, it was built from the tradition of they're trying to do so. They're trying to practice communion or the Lord's Supper. I don't know why we call it that. In a manner that was worthy. And so they only wanted believers in the room. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, and he's addressing the issue of, uh, maybe it's 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2nd, um, the issue of communion and the, pra- the wrong practice of. In the end of that, he says, if you're not practicing correctly, some of you have fallen asleep because of your incorrect practice of the worship remembrance of what I've done for you. Meaning, they died because they didn't, they didn't do this in the proper manner. And so the tradition was built at the church I was at. That means if you're not a Christian, you can't take it. That's bad. You will die. Was that true? No. Paul, Paul writes, and the whole issue he's addressing, they're practicing in the wrong way. They've got people who are wealthy who come in and get toasted off of the wine. And they take all the wine and they take all the bread and they party it up. And those who have less, less come in, those who are poor come in, and they don't get to take any. They don't get to participate in the worship. But Paul writes and says, you are doing this wrong. You're being selfish. You're being ungodly. You're not allowing others to come into the community to participate in this reverent form of worship. That's important. That's a part of remembering. So, I mean, that's just one area that as churches, as we've gone through the ages, we develop these traditions and these ideas of what's supposed to be done and how things are supposed to be practiced on how things are supposed to be believed. And it's not, it's not so much based on scripture as it is a tradition that's built off of and then we're scared to deal with. And so, as we, as we continue to pursue Mark and continue to pursue scripture, my heart and, and, and my desire and as I study scripture is to always try to step out of the traditions I grew up in. Not to make, some, some things I believe, some things I say, some things I try to communicate will make some people mad. It will make some of you mad. There's one thing I wanted to use tonight that I'm not going to use because you don't know me well enough, so I'm not going to say it because it will make you bad and you'll never come back. And we need people right now in this service. However, as we go through, as we study scripture, as we seek to see and to learn who God is and how we relate, how we respond and to understand, there are some things you need to deal with outside of a tradition. To have a full understanding, to allow God to begin to move, to give you good perspective on what God is saying and how I respond, not in fear of, what's mom and dad going to say? What is my church going to say? What does the tradition say? Does this make me a heretic? And so my challenge to you as you study scripture is to not be burdened with the tradition, especially here. Obviously, we see the divinity of Jesus, the defending of the gospel, but this concept that Jesus is teaching, it's not about the burden of the law that God has given Jesus' response is specifically, I'm going to walk in here and I'm going to love somebody who needs me, regardless of who it is and what day it is, and regardless of who it makes mad. Jesus walks in and says, I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to bring the kingdom of God here and now. 
in the beginning of the redemption of man, regardless of who gets mad about it. That should be our response. When God calls us to love people, when there's an opportunity for us to step out and to meet a need that's made available to us that we have means to meet, we should not be hindered by those around us. We shouldn't be hindered by ourselves. We should remember it makes God mad when we don't help people. When we don't have compassion, when we don't love people. And the other thing is, it's okay. If you get somewhere, and God is revealing to you from Scripture what is true and what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to respond, and that doesn't fit in conservative traditional Christianity, that's okay to make people mad. Because our call is to love people and to love God, regardless of the response of those around us. Let's pray. Dear God, come to you now and thank you for another chance to come together to worship you. Uh, to learn from your word. God, we thank you for, again, making a way for us to know you. God, we praise you for (coughs) your love, your forgiveness, uh, the grace that you've given us regardless of who we are uh, and what we've done, God. We thank you for allowing us to know you uh, and making us in process uh, of being corrected again. God, we pray for opportunities to love our neighbors, to love our coworkers, to love our friends this week, to love those uh, who are not loved. God, please help us to see opportunities where we can meet needs uh, and be people of compassion, be people of love, be people that uh, are a part of doing and bringing your kingdom down. Thank you again for your love, your forgiveness, and all you've done. Christian, we pray for you.